is Angela, and this is the Homestead Education Podcast, where we talk all things homesteading, and we want to share our passion and experience for this lifestyle with you. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Homestead Education. It's Mandy and Angela. Hi, Angela. Hi. How are you? Doing well. How are you? Good. Good. Um, We... I don't know what, two or three episodes ago, we started to do these kind of shorter uh, bits, um, focusing in on certain topics, a little bit more um, heightened, I guess, information, if you will. So today, um, we're going to talk about brassicas. So a lot of us are gearing up to start seeding a lot of this. If you haven't already, I know some people have already started. We have not. Have you? No, I intended to start earlier in the week. I just haven't gotten to it yet. I know. I feel like this always happens this time of year. I'm like, okay, the last week of January, I'm going to do this. The first week of February, I'm going to do this. And then it's like the second week of February, and I'm doing everything that I said I was going to do for two weeks. But um, good news is it's not as big of a chunk as, you know, like tomatoes and and peppers. But so today we're going to talk about uh, brassicas and go over really kind of start to finish um, in hopes that it might help some of you all. Um, So when we say brassicas, we mean cold crops, right? Or, I mean, so I I guess the easiest thing or what what most people probably think of when you say brassicas are cabbage, maybe broccoli, cauliflower, things like that. And so you're right that those those are included in the family, kale, um, collards, so um, that's what we're going to grow today. You know what? Um, Ross, cousin, and I, we don't get along. <laughs> I think that probably everybody would say, or a lot of people would sing that tune with you. Yeah, I think that they are incredibly finicky to grow and we're gonna, from seed. And we're going to talk about why. Mm-hmm. Um, this is one of those crops that I have, I do still start from seed, mm-hmm. but I also go into it knowing, and I shouldn't say resigning myself to it. Cause that just sounds like, I feel like I'm doing something wrong, but I know that I'm going to end up supplementing with purchased seedlings because there's always some that just don't hang in there. The thing is, okay. So the thing is with brassicas. Probably broccoli and cauliflower, to be specific, is they get so leggy Mm -hmm. if they are not perfectly positioned in the greenhouse and don't get adequate sunlight or well positioned under a grow light. The thing with grow lights is you have to have them, what is it, like six inches right above the seed tray at all times. Otherwise, they reach. And when they reach, they get leggy or super long, um, scraggly looking stems. And then they they just don't come back from that. I mean, you can pot up deep and you can try to sort of uh, baby them along, but they just struggle, don't they? Oh yeah, two hundred percent. And I am in the I mean in the same boat as you. I think, and we'll go over kind of the, a few things at least that I I know that we've kind of maybe dealt with in starting from seed, but we also same place where we get our onions. Yeah, also will get. Some of their um, usually 
Usually it's just cabbage and Brussels sprouts. We don't grow cauliflower here. I really think it, I, well, I think it's gross, <laughs> um, to be honest. So none of that. Um, and if I'm having pizza, it's going to have a real crust. So, totally. um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, it, they, they're, you said the word finicky, a lot of, uh, but I mean, all plants can be finicky. I think that these ones are, are super finicky. And the problem is on our end, both of us, and a lot of people, I think too, is we have to start them from seed. If you want to have, if you want to start, if you want to have, you know, a late spring, summer harvest, um, you can direct sow them in the fall, but again, you're, it's so weather dependent. Um, a lot of these can tolerate, you know, a freeze or something like that. But if you look at this past year, it, our, our weather, our temperature swings are, are crazy. So if you have one or two days where it gets, you know, well, well below freezing, they're done. Um, and then your, your growing season is over and I'm specifically talking about fall. So we have to kind of baby these crops along in the spring if we want to grow them at all. I mean, they're just divas for real. I mean, they need hot, hot temperatures to germinate from seed, but then they don't want to grow in warm temperatures. It's like, what do you want from me? Mm -hmm. (laughs) They are the divas of the garden. I know. Um, So let's talk a little bit about soil and temperature prior to even like sowing these and what you, you need when, whether you're doing it in a greenhouse or your home, um, or if you're lucky enough to do it directly in your garden, great. That's awesome. We're happy for you. (laughs) Um, well-drained soil. I mean, I think that everything, um, can really benefit from a well-drained soil. And when we say that it's really kind of like, um, a diverse like a biodiverse environment, if that makes sense. So you're going to have well-drained soil if it's not just clay or not just um, manure compost or something like that. You want to have more than one thing in there so that there's fine particles and medium-sized and large particles and things like that. Um, And like Angela said, these seeds, all of which we're talking about, um, and every, we're kind of going to lump everything into one group, but it'll all be in show notes. Um, but like Angela said, they want a little bit of warmth to germinate, but not too much. Um, because they don't actually grow very well in our gardens when it's super hot. Same goes for germination and starting your seeds. So, uh, when we start our seeds in the greenhouse, we have a greenhouse heater because we're starting them in, you know, right now we're February and currently I think it's 13 degrees outside. So we do our best to try and keep the greenhouse above or right around like 40 degrees at all times, even overnight. Um, and then obviously when the sun comes out, it gets warmer and we can turn the heater off. So (laughs) it requires a lot of like back and forth and things like that and shifting, um, but you want to keep it around 65 degrees. Uh, that's not necessarily when I, or I guess in my experience, it's not necessarily the ambient temperature of the air, but like if you're using a germination mat or something like that, you want to, um, the actual specific, uh, surface, if you will, of your pots or think whatever you're doing, soil blocks, your soil temperature, your soil temperature. Yeah, there you go. Um, it wants to be about that. So 
anything more than that. And it's going to contribute to, again, what Angela said, you're going to have like leggy seedlings and things like that. A lot of folks think that, um, which is very true. It's not an incorrect thought, but when we troubleshoot leggy seedlings of all types, um, our first, um, like initial thought is, oh, the light's too far away and the plant is stretching. Well, that's that's probably 100% accurate, but it's also probably related to heat. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. And and when you think about like if you've ever grown a broccoli crop before, it's a really thick stem. Well, you see it if you buy it at the grocery store, right? Because the the stalk is just sort of short, shortened, pruned closer to the crown. That's a really thick woody stem that supports the plant and then all of the side leaves and then any future heads that or buds that might grow off of that stalk. And so if it gets leggy um, right at the get-go, I mean, you're kind of going to have a wonky looking plant. We want that plant to be able to truly support that full five to six inch head of broccoli or cauliflower or whatever it may, might be. And, and in order to make sure we get that, we've got to try to grow a very vertical, um, most upright, strong and sturdy as possible stem. And the best way to do that is to make sure it has adequate light. Mm -hmm. I mean, same goes for tomatoes and things like that. And we'll talk about that further down the road. But um, uh, if we are giving advice here, (laughs) if you are starting uh, broccoli or cabbage or what have you from seed and you notice that it's leggy, I don't try to save them. I think you're wasting your time to try to save them. Now, if it's like a seed that you've coveted or something, you know, obviously there's going to be different situations um, all the time. But if it's a more quote unquote generic seed, you have you have more. It's only been probably two weeks since you started it or so, two to three weeks. So you're not really losing um, much time, if you will. I would just start over. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It, uh, with everything in homesteading, with everything in life, <laughs> but homesteading, gardening, and things like that, time is something that you just can't replace. You know, Casey and I say it all the time when we talk about like this is not necessarily homestead specific, but it you can't get more time in your day. You can get more, you know, uh, you can make more money, if you will. You can, you know, um, cook that lovely dinner again or whatever the situation is, but you can't make more time. So you can't make more time when it comes to gardening and, and replacing that. So if you're trying to like pot up a bunch of leggy seedlings and, you know, use more of your materials and things like that, um, when probably they're not going to thrive and survive anyway, you might as well put that effort in those materials and it's just starting over. So one way to avoid this um, leggy syndrome, if you will, altogether is just to direct sow in the garden. But like Mandy said, um, with with the way that temperatures are kind of fluctuating and we are, we're getting super late freezes, at least here in New Jersey we are, um, all the way into May these last couple of years, it's kind of hard to gauge when direct sowing would actually be appropriate and not just totally wipe out your progress. So I do think that starting in seed trays is a good bet. What increases your chances of success once these are transplanted out into the garden, or if you decide to direct direct sow in the garden, is going to be a row cover. A row cover is not an expensive installation, and it's going to speed up your 
opportunity to plant in very late winter to early spring. Um, so traditionally, I think most seed packets are going to say somewhere around six weeks, maybe a little bit later to either direct sow or to start in seed trays six to eight weeks before your last date of frost. So for example, if you're new to gardening, my last date of frost is going to be, I think it's like April 21st or April 23rd. I would count backwards and say, okay, I can start realistically in February, right? So we go to six to eight weeks prior to that date. Where row cover comes in is like, I'm going to start now. I've got a hoop house up. I've had it all closed up. Um, I know that the soil is going to be warmer on the inside of the hoop house or under row cover than it would be outside of those protected areas. And so I can kind of get started in the greenhouse a little earlier. And those are going to be able to be transplanted out directly into the garden a little bit earlier because I've created this, this growing environment. So while, yes, seed packets and start dates are absolutely a good guide we take into consideration our particular homesteads, our particular growing setup. Mandy's got a greenhouse. That's where she starts everything, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, correct. Um, We uh, have like these, I guess, raised beds that we made kind of uh, raised bed hoop houses, if you will, is a good way to describe it. But I haven't tried direct. I haven't sown anything this early out there. They're mainly for um pest control and then transitioning to shade cloth if we need to so i think one thing that's been very difficult for me aesthetically speaking is i hate the look of row covers on the crops right we have mm-hmm. this sort of or i at least do this utopic daydream of walking out into the garden in the summertime and you just see all your beautiful crops and you can see mm-hmm. how everything's doing The truth is, I mean, Hmm. yes, you can companion plant, but particularly brassicas, if you leave them exposed like that, oh my word, you are opening yourself up to just a massive influx of cabbage moths. You can companion plant and absolutely, that totally does help. But if you want 100% guaranteed, none of those squishy green caterpillars, those are cabbage worms. They're laid by the white fluttery butterflies that, you know, around the garden, those are cabbage moths. If you don't cover your crops for the entire growing season, you are increasing, if not guaranteed, to get those nasty little cabbage worms in your broccoli. And guess what? They do end up in your food. No matter. Yeah. They, I've had so many meals. in. They're in my food. It's so gross. It's so gross. Uh, and I don't believe a single soul. <laughs> if you say that you don't cover or don't spray. Um, and you don't have cabbage moss because uh, we cover, mm-hmm. we still get some. I don't know. They like are, it's like mice. It's like, where do you come from? How do you get in these tiny holes? I know. Um, and the decoys don't work. I've no. tried them. I've tried the decoys. You know, that was a big thing on social media last year. Everybody was was getting on this trend of cutting out paper moths and laminating them and saying that cabbage moths are territorial and I did that once a long time ago. I had shared that and uh, in an effort to see if it would work. It did not work for me. Not to say it won't work for you, but I don't know anyone that it truly, totally worked for. No. The best thing, and this holds true for weeding or just inspecting anything like that for any pests or what have you, is to just take 10 to 15 minutes in the morning or the afternoon or whenever you have time, right, to just go out and inspect and remove. And 
make it like a ritual or a tradition, make it, you know, peaceful. It's like your morning thing. It's your me time, whatever you want to do. Um, but it serves a purpose too. And if you're a permaculture geek, like I am, you can look at it as a turn your problem into a solution and say, I have too many cabbage worms. Okay. Mm -hmm. So we either need to offer alternative protection or bring in attract wild birds to eat those off your Mm -hmm. crops. And you can do that by hanging bird feeders nearby. Just know that that seed potentially is going to drop into your garden soil and germinate or create some sort of a house for swallows, invite predators to feed on those crops. Um, So we've talked about the pest pressure from, from uh, cabbage moths, and we've talked about protecting them both when you're sowing them, transplanting, growing, and through the entire season. Um, but there's a couple reasons that broccoli and cauliflower are still kind of finicky and it comes down to soil pH. You want to talk about that a little bit, Mandy? Yeah. Um, it's, uh, and we have this in our notes too. It's pretty safe to generalize or say that all of these crops that we're talking about want, um, uh, a pH around six to seven or, you know, close to neutral. So not um, super acidic or alkaline and, um, you can test your soil, uh, and things like that. You can do it at home. You can send it off to your, your County extension. We talked about this with onions and I'm sure we've talked about it in multiple episodes. And this is not something that you, it's not a must have that you have to do, but it's something that maybe you would consider if you are doing all these other things and you're still struggling to get a healthy, plant or your plant seems to um, thrive up until a certain point and then you don't actually really get like a big head of broccoli or it doesn't necessarily taste correct or something like that, um, you should really automatically kind of, in my opinion, um, dial it back and think about the soil nutrients and uh, making sure you're actually feeding the plant appropriately so the plant can grow and then feed you. And crop rotation. You had added this to our yeah. notes. You want to go ahead and explain that as well? Yeah. I didn't know this um, until I did um, Master Gardener stuff. But there, you know, we talk about crop rotation all the time. And it's just good to kind of rotate in general. You know, you, you rotate your tomatoes. And I sometimes don't. But we'll talk about that at a later date. Um, but... In general, all these uh, broccoli, kale, cabbage, cauliflower, you don't want to plant it where you planted it last year or even like the year before or the year before. So it's um, just make it a fun project and and change up your design. Uh, I don't know that there's like a specific particular um, reason. Uh, if I had to, if I had to guess, or if I had to assume it's going to be due to pest pressure and things like that. Um, but that, that, that's for all crops. I think, Um, I thought I, I thought I saw this in your show notes, but maybe I didn't. And I was, I saw it somewhere else. I think it's called clubfoot. Oh yeah. I've heard of some sort of a soil born, um, like it kind of reminds me of powdery mildew, like on a pumpkin or a gourd. I think it's something along those lines. I could be totally making this up, but I thought that might be why we rotate. 
I don't think you're making it up. I think just in general, it's a good idea to rotate because if you even think about what we were talking about a second ago with soil nutrition and feeding the plant, you they plants require and also put off um, different nutrients. So they require different nutrients to the soil and then they deliver different nutrients to the soil. And so if you're doing the same thing over and over, um, it's likely going to deplete um, certain nutrients that they're going to need. But you look like you have something to say. <laughs> well, I just looked it up real quick to make sure I wasn't full of shit. It it's not club foot. <laughs> that is a human condition. <laughs> it's it's club root. So club it's root. This, club it's root. Yeah. the same idea. I mean, technically the foot of the plant is the root, but I am just I'm just over here laughing at myself. Is all. <laughs> because everybody's gonna be like, my broccoli has club foot. <laughs> not close. I'll take the blame. <laughs> oh gosh. Um, yeah. So it, it's just kind of a wise thing to rotate your crops and, and things like that. Um, so what we've talked about, they like a more neutral pH. We've talked about kind of seeding and when to start timing wise, obviously it's going to be on your seed packets and things like that. And then when it's time to transplant, um, it it's it's just a good idea to go ahead and set up some row cover or something like that. You want to really protect them when they're at their most vulnerable stage. Um, sure, if we're if you're doing it in March or some you know late March, usually it's around like St. Patrick's Day for us is when we're going to really start heavily planting a lot of those that we've started in the greenhouse actually out into the garden because they can tolerate you know some colder temperatures. You could push the limits as like Angela said if you have row cover. Um, so it, you would think that you're not going to have pest pressure that early. You're likely right, <laughs> but you won't know you have pest pressure until you have an actual problem. Um, and then really, honestly, it's going to be too late. So um, in another thing that we have in notes, but I'll mention when we transplant um, out in the garden, we'll let everything kind of hang out for a little bit. And then when our brassicas are about, um, I don't know, four to five inches tall, we'll side dress with a little compost to kind of just give them some extra nutrients. Um, and I don't know if we mentioned it before, but they like to remain, you know, evenly watered basically from start to finish. But you know what, like what plant doesn't really, I mean, onions at the very end or something like that. But it's kind of just like a hard and fast. We say all these things and it's like, wait, but that's what I do with everything. So, yeah. okay. So, a couple of things. Number one, I do not succession plant broccoli or cauliflower or kale. For me, they are kind of like, um, I don't want to say one and done, but I plant them all at once because they do not like growing in the heat. They can, but then you have to take precautions, right? Like the shade cloth you mentioned, you have to keep them a little bit on the cooler side or they bolt, which means they send up their, their flower shoots and they start to go to seed. Um, I do not think it's worthwhile to succession plant most of the brassicas. Do you? No. I mean, and for us, it's exactly what you said, but, um, we, I don't want to waste space with stuff yeah. like that. Like it's more, it's, it's like seasonal eating and things like that. We're going to eat more of that stuff. And then I want to transition to more summer. Um, and 
I'm not going to really preserve broccoli or cabbage. We're going to either like, you know, ferment it or freeze it or, you know, use it as fresh, really. We're not saving a lot of that. So I don't want to take up space in the garden um, where I would be growing something that I really enjoy eating much more because truth be told, I don't really like broccoli either, but Casey does and <laughs> so does my family. So I grow it and it's fine. So one of the things though, if you are inexperienced with growing Brussels sprouts is that these are not something you are going to harvest yeah. quickly. This is an investment crop, meaning you're going to plant it early, plant it in the spring. You could also plant it in the fall, but it, it takes like six months and you will not harvest until fall. Mm-hmm. So that is why we see it in a lot of fall menus, uh, even winter menus at restaurants, or if you are buying at farmer's markets or eating seasonally, that is a crop you are going to need to leave permanent space for, if you will, uh, for the entire growing season. Now, speaking of permanent space, I explained my hate relationship I have with starting a lot of these brassicas, which is why I have turned to perennials. So I didn't know this until uh, last year. There are options for perennial brassicas. I am now growing um, perennial kales, perennial collards, and even perennial broccoli, which is like a bushing habit. And it's weird. It's a broccoli, but it's white. So it looks like cauliflower, but it's not. And this will be the first year I get a harvest from those plants because I planted them late last fall. I'm anxious to see how they're doing. They're still alive right now. I can harvest off of the collards and off of the kales right now. Um, but that's an option for you, right? Because it does a whole onslaught of, of beneficial things for the soil. But then also you just don't have the costs associated anymore or labor with planting them in the spring. So that's something I'm kind of migrating to. So that's interesting. Yeah, that's super fancy. Is and it fancy? <laughs> no. I, I mean, it, it's a really good idea for a lot of people. I mean, I had no idea. I had no idea that they were perennial. I mean, I have yeah. heard. I mean, we have kale in the garden right now that's like half surviving. And um, sometimes I'll pick it off and give it to the birds. But, I mean, a lot of these plants are pretty dang tough. But, totally. um, and if you leave it, then, you know, it might come, it might actually overwinter and come back. But oh, that's interesting um, and a very, very good idea. Well, I have a link in show notes if you're interested. Uh, I have just recommended a few if you're interested in finding seeds. Nine Star Broccoli is going to be that perennial broccoli. Tree Collards, Walking Stick Kale, Dobbinton's Kale, and Cosmic Perennial Kales. Those are going to be your guaranteed perennials that will come back bigger and better every year. And then the last thing is, I just want to touch on an experiment called the Kale Experiment that I had done. Because I think this might be able to apply to other brassicas as well. If you struggle with cabbage worms, and we touched on those before... One thing that I had heard was that you can plant purple crops or red versions of those crops. So like red cabbage, for example, and they aren't bothered necessarily by cabbage moths and cabbage worms the same way as like the green versions, green counterparts. So I experimented with this last year and I grew curly varieties, flat leaf varieties of kale, some with purple stems, like a red sails kale, but green foliage. And then I also grew like, um, like I think it's scarlet kale is the variety that mm-hmm. was purple. It's true. Yeah, it's totally true. You're very true. I didn't know it was a thing. I didn't know it was an yeah. experiment. But now looking back, yeah, it is true. And I wonder why. I bet we could do. Some I re- can tell you why. Oh, okay, I, I like, got I'm, this. Okay, good. Yeah, take it away. I'm gonna tell you why. So that purple pigment, 
um, is caused by anthocyanins. It's a compound which is also responsible for like an increase in antioxidants and like darker colored berries, like blueberries. But they're unpalatable to cabbage moths and cabbage worms. And so they aren't attracted the same way are to something that's going to be green and not purple. So if you plant more red cabbage over green or more um, darker colored kales, and they're even as purple broccoli, maybe that would be a better fit for you. Hmm. That is genius. I'm like, wow, yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I'm speechless. I think it's, <laughs> I mean, I knew there had to be a reason, but I'm like over here just like, huh, well, I guess they don't like it or, huh, maybe I picked, <laughs> maybe I picked all the worms off that one. I can't remember. <laughs> See, it's just, we get things out of this podcast as well, right? We're learning oh, from yeah. each other all the time. 200%. I don't have anything else to contribute to this yeah. episode. <laughs> We're sorry, everybody. <laughs> um, no, I, I I think that we I think we covered everything that I that we wanted to cover. Um, if we didn't, if we missed anything, obviously it'll be in show notes. We have a little bit more, um, I guess, more refined uh, verbiage there versus our chatter. Um, but it's time. We'll start ours here in the next week or so. Check back with me in a week and see if that's actually true. But um, that's the goal, and. Um, Cheers, everyone. We hope you have a good day. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Homestead Education Podcast. Any relevant material will be put in the show notes. We hope you'll share our episodes and also click that subscribe button. For more information about this podcast, you can visit us on Instagram at Homestead Education Podcast. Angela can be found online at axandroothomestead.com and on Instagram at axeandroothomestead. Mandy can also be found online at thefarmermandy.com and on Instagram at wildoakfarms. We'll see you next time.